Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our October 2014 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Whether a relationship exists between adverse childhood experiences and severity of obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD, is unclear. Earlier studies on this topic leave a considerable degree of uncertainty. Furthermore, no previous studies have investigated whether a relationship exists between adverse childhood experiences and chronicity of OCD or comorbidity in patients with OCD. Knowing more about these relationships would help clinicians begin to understand how to treat patients with OCD who report adverse childhood experiences. In a sample of 382 adult patients referred with OCD, the authors used structured interviews to examine and measure the relationships between adverse childhood experiences and OCD symptom severity and chronicity and comorbidity. No relationship was found between adverse childhood experiences and OCD symptom severity or chronicity. However, a significant relationship between adverse childhood experiences and comorbidity was found. According to the authors, these results suggest that, unlike in other psychiatric disorders, Adverse childhood experiences play no significant role in symptom severity and chronicity of OCD. The authors further conclude that earlier studies finding heightened trauma rates among patients with OCD compared to healthy controls should be critically reconsidered since comorbidity might account for these differences. The authors of this article studied the impact of prenatal exposure to both serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SRIs, and maternal major depressive disorder on infant development in the first 18 months after birth. They hypothesized that prenatal exposure to SRIs, or major depressive disorder, would be associated with lower psychomotor, mental and behavioral scores on the Bailey Scales of Infant Development 2nd Edition, a widely used development assessment, compared with non-exposed infants. The study used a prospective, longitudinal design and included 166 mother-infant dyads, 68 with prenatal SRI or major depressive disorder exposure, and 98 non-exposed controls. Maternal depression and SRI exposure assessments were completed at or as near as feasible to three points in pregnancy, 20, 30, and 36 weeks, to establish exposure, and at four points after birth, 12, 26, 52, and 78 weeks, to evaluate developmental outcomes. The authors did not confirm their hypothesis. Prenatal exposure to SRIs or major depressive disorder did not significantly impact any of the Bailey scale scores. However, 
they observed that SRI exposure was associated with lower psychomotor development scores at 26 and 52 weeks compared with non-exposed infants. However, this group difference was no longer significant at the 78-week assessment. These findings are consistent with previous studies, which have found that prenatal SRI exposure does not affect mental development. Less favorable psychomotor development scores have been inconsistently reported by investigators. These data suggest that the effects of prenatal SRI exposure on motor functioning may be transitory, and that more studies of longitudinal patterns of developmental outcomes are needed. This research was supported by a grant from the National Institute of Mental Health. With 180 million people infected worldwide, chronic hepatitis C virus infection constitutes a substantial burden of disease. Many patients with this virus receive treatment with pedulated interferon and ribavirin, but this treatment is associated with substantial side effects, including flu-like symptoms, anemia, and depression. Intravenous drug use has become the main route of hepatitis C virus transmission in Western countries. Modeling studies suggest that treatment of active intravenous drug use with antiviral therapy may be one of the best ways to contain the burden. Interferon-induced depression in patients infected with hepatitis C virus has been reported to occur more often in patients with pre-existing psychiatric illness. Yet while interferon-free regimens are in development, pedulated interferon and ribavirin therapy is expected to remain the backbone of antiviral therapy in the near future. To learn more about how to prevent depression in this patient group, the authors of this article performed an analysis to identify hepatitis C virus patients who benefited the most from prophylactic treatment with selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Among patients participating in a prospective randomized controlled trial, the authors analyzed those receiving antiviral therapy with pedulated interferon and ribavirin. Their post hoc analysis revealed that hepatitis C virus patients with a history of depression and intravenous drug use carried the highest risk to develop interferon-induced depression. In this subset of patients, prophylaxis with escitalopram resulted in the most substantial decrease of interferon-induced depressive symptoms. Military sexual trauma is defined by the Department of Veterans Affairs as sexual harassment that is threatening in character or physical assault of a sexual nature that occurred while the victim was in the military. Several recent studies have reported a high prevalence of military sexual trauma in returning female Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, bringing national attention to the issue. A survey conducted by Klingensmith and colleagues and funded by the VA found that among 1,484 U.S. veterans, the prevalence of military sexual trauma was 7.6%. In women, the prevalence was 32%, 
while in men it was 4.8%. In veterans aged 29 years or younger, the prevalence was 22.8%, while among those aged 60 or older, it was 4.5%. Findings show that military sexual trauma was associated with depression, generalized anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, and suicidal thinking, as well as reduced functioning and quality of life. Those with a history of military sexual trauma also had increased rates of mental health treatment utilization and use of psychotropic medications. The authors conclude that military sexual trauma is prevalent among U.S. veterans and is associated with a significant burden on the mental and functional health of U.S. veterans, as well as the mental health treatment system. Be sure to visit us online at psychiatrist.com to read an insightful commentary by Heidi Glazmere that discusses the topic of sexual trauma in the context of the German Army. This commentary is free to registered users of the JCP website. Previous research has shown that after their release, prisoners have high suicide rates compared with the general population, but little is known about risk factors and possible causal pathways. The authors of this article conducted a population-based cohort study to investigate rates and risk factors for suicide in people previously imprisoned. They identified individuals released from prison in Sweden during a five-year period. Through the linkage of national population-based registers, they followed the ex-prisoners from the day of release until death, emigration, new incarceration, or the end of the study period. Survival analyses were conducted to compare incident rates and psychiatric morbidity with non-convicted population controls matched by gender and year of birth. The study received funding support from the Swedish Prison and Probation Administration, the Swedish Research Council, and Wellcome Trust. The authors identified nearly 40,000 releases by 27,000 individuals. Overall, 127 suicides occurred, accounting for 14% of all deaths after release. The mean suicide rate was 204 per 100,000 person years, yielding an incident rate ratio of 18 compared with general population controls. The risk for suicide was particularly high during the first months after release. Previous substance use disorder, suicide attempt, and being born in Sweden as opposed to being born abroad were independent risk factors for suicide after release. The authors conclude that released prisoners are at high suicide risk and have a slightly different pattern of psychiatric risk factors compared with the general population. The results suggest that appropriate resources should be allocated to facilitate transition to life in freedom and to provide increased attention to prisoners with a history of both suicide attempt and substance use disorder. Anxiety disorders are common, especially among women. Therefore, many women may suffer from an anxiety disorder during pregnancy. 
Research indicates a link between prenatal maternal stress and anxiety and adverse obstetric, fetal, and neonatal outcomes. The authors of this article conducted a comprehensive systematic review of the literature on anxiety disorders during pregnancy. Their aim was to find answers to the following question. How common are anxiety disorders during pregnancy? Does pregnancy have an effect on the onset and course of anxiety disorders? Are there known risk factors for anxiety disorders in pregnancy? Are there known maternal, obstetric, or child outcomes associated with anxiety disorders during pregnancy? And what are the evidence-based treatments for anxiety disorders during pregnancy? The review includes a total of 57 studies representing 45 samples. The studies were carried out in 16 different countries. The findings indicate that anxiety disorders in pregnancy are prevalent. Still, despite the increase in studies of prenatal anxiety disorders in the past decade, the literature remains limited. The authors conclude that much additional research is needed to develop a solid evidence base on which to guide clinical practice. Generalized anxiety disorder is one of the most common comorbid anxiety disorders associated with bipolar disorder. Patients with bipolar disorder and comorbid anxiety disorders typically have an earlier onset of illness, more rapid cycling, suicidal behavior and substance use disorder, poor response to conventional agents, and a worse prognosis than patients with either disorder alone. More importantly, there is no guideline or consensus on pharmacologic treatment for patients with bipolar disorder and comorbid anxiety disorder, as there is for generalized anxiety disorder alone. The use of antidepressants may trigger mania or destabilize the course of bipolar illness. Benzodiazepines can be used for the treatment of anxiety in bipolar disorder without substance use disorder, but may be riskier for those bipolar patients who have both anxiety and substance use disorder. To address this unmet need, a randomized placebo-controlled trial of quetiapine extended release versus placebo was conducted in patients who had bipolar 1 or 2 depression and generalized anxiety disorder and other comorbidities. The efficacy of quetiapine in relatively pure patients with bipolar 1 or 2 depression or generalized anxiety disorder has been demonstrated previously. Therefore, the authors hypothesize that quetiapine extended release would be superior to placebo in reducing depression or anxiety symptoms in this highly comorbid population. 100 patients were equally randomized to quetiapine extended release and placebo for eight weeks. However, there was no significant difference between the two groups in depression or anxiety symptoms from baseline to the end of the study. There were also no significant differences between the two groups in other outcome measures. The data from this study suggests that the results from relatively pure bipolar patients may not be generalizable to a highly comorbid population. 
the study was initiated with a NARSAD award and further support from AstraZeneca. Hepatocellular carcinoma is common worldwide and is the fastest rising cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States. Patients with chronic hepatitis C and liver cirrhosis are at risk for developing hepatocellular cancer. Depression is a frequent comorbidity of hepatitis C, and selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, are often prescribed. The impact of antidepressant use on cancer worries clinicians because preclinical in vitro studies suggest that serotonin may stimulate the growth of liver cells leading to hepatocellular cancer. However, no clinical studies look at serotonin exposure and its potential impact on the development of hepatocellular cancer in hepatitis C patients. In this study, supported by the Department of Veterans Affairs, a large sample of veterans with chronic hepatitis C who were exposed to SSRIs were studied to determine whether these antidepressants increased the risk of hepatocellular cancer. The researchers found that taking an SSRI did not increase this risk. This finding should be reassuring to clinicians who prescribe SSRIs for the treatment of depression in patients with hepatitis C. Psychotic illnesses after childbirth are serious mental health conditions. They can have major negative consequences on the well-being and safety of the mother and her baby and cause severe and long-lasting stress on the whole family. The authors of this article designed a retrospective study of 90 women with peripheral psychosis that started within four weeks after delivery. The women were followed up for a mean period of 12 years. 35 patients had already suffered from previous psychotic episodes before the peripheral index episode. 55 patients experienced peripheral psychosis as first-time psychosis. During the acute index episode, the patients presented three major diagnostic categories. Major depression with psychotic features, mania with psychotic features, and cycloid psychosis that comes close to the diagnostic DSM category of brief psychosis with postpartum onset. A high suicidal and infanticidal risk during and after the acute index episode had to be respected. Of the original sample with early-onset peripheral psychosis, six patients committed suicide shortly after discharge despite seemingly good remission. Two babies died in the context of an extended suicide. In the course of illness, diagnostic stability was observed in the groups with unipolar depression and mania. Patients with initial brief psychosis shifted to a bipolar affective disorder in a substantial number of cases. A high risk of further peripheral and of further non-peripheral psychosis was noted, the latter being more pronounced. Among patients with first-time peripheral psychosis, a subgroup remained without any further psychiatric illness and showed a very favorable psychosocial outcome. Sleep problems are common in the general population. 
Epilepsy is also a common brain disease worldwide with a prevalence of 0.5% to 1% in humans. In the human brain, gamma-aminobutyric acid or GABAergic neurons play a critical role in regulating the cortical stability in both sleep problems and epilepsy. Celepidem, a non-benzodiazepine GABAergic drug, has been the most popular prescription for sleep problems in Taiwan for more than a decade. However, some studies recently revealed that long-term use of celepidem might change cortical stability and increase locomotor activities, thereby enhancing the epilepsy. The authors used data from the National Health Insurance System of Taiwan to conduct a population-based, case-controlled study on the impact of long-term zolepidem use. They identified 4,972 newly diagnosed epilepsy patients for the period of 2005 through 2010. For each epilepsy case, four controls without a history of epilepsy were randomly selected from the rest of the population. Patients with epilepsy were more strongly associated with zolepidem exposure than were controls. When patients stopped zolepidem use for more than 90 days, they were still one and a half times more likely to develop epilepsy. This study revealed a possible increase in epilepsy risk with solepidem use, either with typical or supertherapeutic doses. These findings might stimulate public interest in the safety issues regarding solepidem use. The authors of this article investigate whether patients' expectations of improvement and treatment initiation influence not only placebo response, but also medication response in antidepressant clinical trials. The authors reanalyzed data from two earlier studies that were performed to see whether patients who responded to acute antidepressant treatment needed to continue medication in order to avoid relapse. The study received grant support from the National Institute of Mental Health. Adult outpatients with major depressive disorder were treated for 12 weeks with fluoxetine. Patients who responded to this treatment were then randomized to continue fluoxetine treatment or else switch to placebo. The authors specifically looked at whether patients' knowledge that they may be switched to placebo at 12 weeks caused them to feel worse, regardless of whether they were actually switched. Results showed that patients who continued to receive fluoxetine, as well as those switched to placebo, had worse depression scores immediately after they knew they might be switched. Moreover, the more patients benefited in the first three weeks of the study, the more they tended to worsen when they knew they might be switched to placebo. These results, the authors conclude, suggest that treatment changes influence patients' expectations of improvement, which in turn affect their depressive symptoms. Despite 25 years of research, the effects of fetal exposure to maternal depression remain difficult to separate from those of fetal exposure to antidepressant medications. 
The authors of this article reviewed the literature on short-term and long-term behavioral outcomes of infants and children who were exposed in utero to active maternal depression or antidepressant treatment. Such a review might enable clinicians to help patients weigh risks of treated versus untreated depression on the developing fetus. The review focused on prospective studies that examined the impact of maternal depression or maternal antidepressant treatment during pregnancy on clearly defined, measurable infant outcomes. The authors found that active untreated depression in the mother during her pregnancy can be associated with effects on the baby shortly after delivery. These effects include distress, less optimal orientation and motor activity, and disruptive sleep. Some effects on longer-term outcome have been reported, including disruptive social behavior, depression, and changes in the period of sensitivity for language discrimination. On the other hand, antidepressant treatment during pregnancy has also been associated with short-term effects on the baby. These include effects on the autonomic and motor activity, ability to habituate to stimuli, and sleep. While some longer-term studies have found potential subtle effects on gross motor function and language development, the majority of studies have not found lasting impact on child development. The authors conclude that decisions regarding the treatment of depression during pregnancy need to be made on an individual basis. For mild to moderate depression, psychotherapy can be very helpful. For more severe symptoms, however, careful thought should be given to the impact of depression on a woman's ability to care for herself as well as its impact on her marriage, family, job, ability to care for her other children, and other important aspects of her life. When interferon alpha is given as an antiviral treatment for hepatitis C, depression is a common side effect. In this study, one out of four patients treated with interferon alpha developed a major depressive episode. A group from Spain performed a systematic review and meta-analysis of the literature to assess the utility of prophylactic administration of antidepressants to prevent a major depressive episode during interferon-alpha treatment for chronic hepatitis C. Seven studies with a total of 137 patients were analyzed. None of the patients had depression at baseline. Prophylactic administration of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, reduced the incidence of major depressive episodes by 43%. However, the impact of the intervention was moderate, and the reduction in depressive symptoms was not significant until week 24 of antiviral treatment. Adding an SSRI to the antiviral treatment was generally well-tolerated. Antidepressants were associated with less muscle or joint ache, but also with more dizziness and a trend towards greater incidence of sexual side effects. The addition of SSRIs was not related to changes in sustained virologic response to antiviral treatment. Curcumin, an ingredient of turmeric, is widely available as a nutritional supplement. 
It has biological properties that suggest its use for a large number of health-related conditions, including depression. In this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade looks at the existing data from both animal models and clinical trials to consider whether there is sufficient evidence to consider this nutritional supplement as a part of antidepressant treatment. Visit us online at psychiatrist.com to read this column and participate in the discussion. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the October issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.